Hi everyone, Laszlo Montgomery here again, still coming your way, as always, from the ChinaHistoryPodcast.com, rated one of the top 100 China history-related podcasts in the world. We sort of come to you each week, well, not this time, featuring random topics from China's thousands of years of history. Last week, we lingered around 1949-1950 and looked at the first 12 months or so of the PRC. Today, we're going to move the dial back just a little and cover the lives of four individuals, all Westerners, who committed their lives to the People's Republic. Their commitment to the Chinese nation was so strong that upon their deaths, they received what amounts to one of the greatest of honors, and that is to be buried in China's Shan Cemetery. This cemetery, located in western Beijing, is to China what, let's say, oh, Arlington National is to the American conscience. Lots of heroes, leaders, and martyrs from China have their final resting place in this hallowed ground. All four of these people that we're going to discuss today are more than worthy of their own episodes, but I thought I'd condense everything down and look at them collectively as a group of Westerners who love China and share their final resting places together in the city whose founding went all the way back to the times of Kublai Khan. These four foreigners who we'll look at today are George Hatem, known in China as Mahaita, Israel Epstein, Anna Louise Strong, and Agnes Smedley. All China history aficionados, no doubt, have heard of all or most of them, but just in case you needed to brush up on exactly how they made their mark or if you aren't familiar with them at all, today we'll take a look at all four, their lives, and how they ended up in China and why, after their deaths, China's leaders accorded them this highest of honors. Before we do that, though, let's look at Shan Cemetery and briefly examine the history of this sacred ground in China and for the Communist Party. The whole name is the Shan Revolutionary Cemetery, or Shan Ge Ming Gong Mu. Ba means eight, Bao means treasure, and Shan means mountain, so it's eight treasure mountain. The history of this place goes all the way back to the Ming Dynasty. There was a general named Gang Bing, who served under the Yongle Emperor, who we featured in CHP episode number 32, the Ming Dynasty Part 2. Gang Bing was the most loyal and favorite general of this emperor, who reigned from 1402 to 1424. So loyal and trustworthy was Gang Bing that the emperor selected him to watch over the imperial palace while he and his entire entourage went out on one of his many hunting expeditions up to the north in Manchuria. General Gang accepted this honor and very politically sensitive job. General Gang knew that this trust that the Yongle Emperor gave him had a double-edged sword in that it accorded him great honor and political power, but at the same time left him vulnerable to the wiles and machinations of the eunuchs and other palace favorites who ate men like Gangping for lunch. Knowing that he would surely fall victim to the accusations of, well, having a go with one or two of the emperor's six dozen or so concubines while he was away, the evening before the Yongle emperor left on his hunt, General Gang castrated himself and, as the story goes, placed his severed organ in a bag 
and hid the package under the emperor's royal saddle. The Ming emperor then went off on a splendid hunt, and sure enough, when he gets back to the palace after his outdoor expedition, he is met with whispers and hints and allegations that General Gangping was having, how shall I say, an inappropriate relationship with one or several of the emperor's concubines. When charged with this accusation, General Gang revealed everything, and when the severed genitals were retrieved from the Yongle Emperor's saddle, the truth was known, and heads rolled, but not Gangbing's. He was made the chief eunuch and became a power at court until his death in 1410, whereupon the Yongle Emperor declared him a god, and he became a patron saint of all eunuchs. A plot of land was dedicated on the outskirts of Beijing, where Shan stands today, is a final resting place for all eunuchs, and this is what it remained for almost five and a half centuries. It was called the Eunuch's Temple. In 1950, during the first year after liberation, it was renamed the Beijing Municipal Cemetery for revolutionaries, and then in 1970, it was given the name that we know it today, Shan National Cemetery for Revolutionaries. Not all, but many of the great heroes of the revolution have their ashes interred there, including leaders such as uh, Generals Zhu De and Peng De Huai. Liu Shaoqi's ashes are also said to be interred at Shan, but so many questions remain regarding his most tragic of deaths. It's not 100% certain Liu's ashes were in fact placed in this national cemetery, but the party line says they are, so let's just go along with that. His elegant and distinguished wife, Wang Guangmei, who passed away in 2006, did have her funeral there. Chairman Mao, of course, occupies prime real estate on the south end of Tiananmen Square, and Zhou Enlai's ashes were spread over various hills and valleys, and Deng Xiaoping's ashes were scattered at sea, so they would not be found at Babaoshan. Let's look at the first of these Westerners whose Life brought them to China, where they selflessly served the Chinese people leading up to and after the founding of the People's Republic. We'll go in order of the year of their death and begin with Agnes Smedley, who passed away in 1950. Agnes Smedley, something about that name that's just too hard to forget. Here is a woman who lived decades before her time. She was an early fighter for women's rights and many other progressive causes that she believed in. She was an early proponent for birth control, that hottest of hot-button issues. It was just as controversial and the debate just as heated back in the first half of the 20th century as it is today. She came from nothing. I mean, nothing. She was born, if you look on a map, literally in the middle of nowhere in the small village of Osgood in northern Missouri. That, back in her day, had a little over 200 people living there. Today, there are less than 50 people who call Osgood their home. Edgar Snow, who was not interred at Babaoshan, but who also loved China and made his mark there in the early decades of the People's Republic, he was also from Missouri, but from Kansas City, which, I might add, is the hometown of none other than Professor Bob Packett of History According to Bob. Well, he's from Baltimore originally, but now he's pure KC. Anyways, so Agnes Smedley was born in 1892, dirt poor, small town, middle of nowhere. In 1901, she went from one obscure town to another, moving to the mining town of Trinidad, Colorado, which 
exposed young Agnes to the coal miner strike, 1903-1904. In 1910, her mother died, and after a while, she ended up in Tempe, Arizona, where she began her writing career. And it's as a writer that she made her greatest contribution to China. She married in 1912, moved to San Francisco, and then in 1918, divorced and moved to New York, where she worked with Margaret Sanger, the famous birth control advocate and sex education pioneer. Agnes Smedley was a free spirit. I don't know how else to describe her. Before she turned her sights and her heart to China, she first became involved in the Indian independence movement. She hung out with all kinds of colorful left-wing characters from the independence movement, even moving to Germany with one of the movement's leaders who she carried on a relationship with. She opened the first birth control clinic in Berlin, and joined the American Socialist Party in 1926. In 1929, a year after arriving in China, she wrote an autobiographical novel called Daughter of Earth. You can read this book in its entirety on Google Books if you're so inclined. After this, she used her German connections to land a job in Shanghai as a writer for a German paper. There, Agnes Smedley got herself mixed up with all kinds of colorful and nefarious men, including both Soviet and Japanese spies. I'm not sure about the extent of the spying that she was herself involved in, but she was certainly in the thick of all that was going on in 1930s Shanghai. She continued her career as a writer, working with both German and UK papers. She became more and more involved in all kinds of activities related to the Chinese Civil War and was actually present in Xi'an in December of 1936 when the Xi'an incident happened. A podcast for another day. She became a mouthpiece for the communists who were busy fighting both the nationalists and the Japanese. She traveled with both the 8th Route Army and the New 4th Army that made up the so-called Red Army. There she mingled with the likes of Zhu De, Lin Biao, He Long, Liu Bo Cheng. She became very close with all these guys and was clearly passionate and sympathetic to their cause. However, when she applied for membership to the Communist Party in China, her application was rejected, no doubt because of her fiercely independent spirit. No one could tame her, not even the CCP. So she faced this disappointment but remained committed to the cause of the revolution. Between 1938 and 1941, she was continuously in the thick of everything going on in China, reporting from the front, facing down death and enduring all the hardships that one might expect in the middle of a war zone. She got the word out to the Western world about what was going on in China, and although a supporter of the United Front, she naturally painted the communist cause in the most positive light. The communists, like Mao, Zhou, and others, couldn't do it by themselves, so they desperately needed people like Agnes Smedley to get their story out and let the world know what they were fighting for. She moved back to the United States and spent the greater part of the 1940s writing about China's revolution and hitting the road and talking about everything she had witnessed firsthand in China. And this, of course, got her in all kinds of trouble. Back in those days, openly showing sympathy for any type of communist cause was guaranteed to land you in trouble. And of course, Agnes Smedley was definitely in the crosshairs of the FBI and the U.S. government authorities. She was essentially 
hounded out of the USA and ended up in Britain in 1949, living for a time in Oxford. Her whole life, she was afflicted with various mental problems, no doubt brought on by all the pressures of her impoverished upbringing and being such an open and free spirit all her life. This left her open to attack, and she was indeed targeted by every side at one time or another. Nonetheless, she struggled with this and kept moving forward, but she died at the age of 58 on May 6, 1950. Agnes Smedley knew most all of China's founding leaders. She got the word out to the Western world about the communist cause, most importantly, to the USA, UK, and Germany. China's leaders, well, they wouldn't let her into the Communist Party, but nonetheless, they accorded her a great honor after liberation and interred her ashes at Babaoshan Cemetery. The next person I wanted to introduce is Anna Louise Strong. Her life had some similarities with Agnes Smedley in that she was a radical leftist, was drawn to the Soviet Union and later to China, used her voice and her pen to speak out on behalf of socialism against the downsides of capitalism and in support of the common people who she time and again glorified in her writings. Like Agnes Smedley, she was the target of the establishment in the USA. As I mentioned, in those days, during the first half of the 20th century, it was a risky business indeed and perceived in the U.S. as very unpatriotic to go around promoting the things going on in Moscow and praising Stalin and all the policies of the Soviet Union. Like Agnes Smedley, Anna Louise Strong came from a small town. She was born in Friend, Nebraska, about 45 minutes west on the I-80 from the state capital of Lincoln, which some city folk might argue was also in the middle of nowhere. She didn't come from money, but she was far from dirt poor. She initially made her mark in the leftist socialist world when she was introduced to the workers' plight in the state of Washington. It was in Washington state where she became involved in the labor movement, promoting social services for the poor and underprivileged and railing against the establishment and capitalism. She was also an outspoken pacifist and made a considerable effort to speak out against the draft during World War I. In 1921, after the Great War, she ended up in Poland and later the Soviet Union. Like Agnes Smedley, she reported from these far-flung places and gave her observations, which were rather sympathetic to the policies of Lenin and later Stalin. In Russia, she found her calling in life and wrote prodigiously about the Soviet experiment and everything they were trying to do to remake society. She ended up planting some roots in the new Russia and stayed a while. She spoke out strongly through her writings against the Trotskyites during the Great Purge in the Soviet Union, and this, of course, endeared her to Stalin. Later in the 1920s, she ended up in China, where she met two people who had a great influence on her and who were primarily responsible for her later personal commitment to China. These were Zhou Enlai and the second of the two Song sisters, Song Qingling. You remember the Song sisters, forever immortalized by Chairman Mao when he said one loved money, one loved power, and one loved China. And it was Song Qingling, wife of Sun Yat-sen, who was the one who loved China. Anna Louise Strong returned to Moscow after her brief stay in China and remained active in supporting the policies of Stalin and started the first English-language newspaper in Moscow. 
She was a very prolific writer, churning out many books and articles, all of which attempted to explain what was going on in the Soviet Union. And of course, everything was sympathetic of Stalin's policies. She remained there until 1936, writing and promoting the socialist system. Like Agnes Smedley, however, she ultimately became disillusioned with the kind of thing Stalin began doing in the 30s with all the purges and killing. Her writings later on became particularly sympathetic to the communist cause in China. She met many of China's leaders while staying in Moscow. Anna Louise Strong began to more and more praise Mao and his growing contribution to communism. She was, I believe, the only reporter in the 1930s granted access to Mao and got the word out during the Civil War. She was very outspoken against the nationalists in general and Jiang Kai-shek in particular, and railed against U.S. support of this regime. It was during an interview with Anna Louise Strong during the Chinese Civil War that Mao first uttered the phrase, paper tiger, Hu. This is one of the most famous Maoisms that became part and parcel of the Mao brand. Mao was trying to show how these fearsome things like the U.S. in general, and later on the atom bomb, were far from being tigers, you know, a metaphor for something dangerous that could kill or destroy. By referring to these things as paper tigers, Mao was saying they're not nearly as dangerous in reality as they seem in real life. Anyways, the term paper tiger is something that Mao was the first to say, and it was Anna Louise Strong who first wrote these famous words in one of her articles. She thought Mao was great. Zhou Enlai, too. These two leaders really liked her and trusted her for the support she gave them in getting out all these positive vibes about what they were trying to build in the new China. Stalin, on the other hand, being the alpha male in the world of communism, didn't want to see any rivals being groomed or coddled by Western reporters. So after she wore out her welcome and after she was charged with espionage, Stalin had her deported in 1949. She returned to the U.S., but her political views had branded her a radical, which back in those days wasn't such a good thing. She had been such a prolific writer of socialism and of everything going on in the Soviet Union. Her work appeared in all the major radical left-wing papers and journals of the day. She also wrote several books documenting her experiences. So although the fringe left embraced her, the mainstream sort of saw her as a kook, so she didn't really feel too welcome back in the U.S. Back in those days, having these extreme left views could get you locked up in prison. It's not like today, where extreme views, either on the right or the left, have become sort of mainstreamed. Anyway, she remained in the U.S. until 1958. Her passport had been canceled, and she was the constant target of attacks, and she put up with all the usual inconveniences of being a communist sympathizer in the decade of the 1950s. Once her passport was restored in 1958, thanks to the Supreme Court case of Rockwell Kent versus John Foster Dulles, she picked up and moved to China, and basically that's where she stayed until the end of her days. The amazing thing about Anna Louise Strong was that she remained a revered figure in China, amongst the Xing, the common people, as well as China's leaders, and even during the Cultural Revolution when so many foreigners, like her friends 
Israel Epstein, Sidney Rittenberg, for example, who had always spoken out on behalf of Mao and the revolution, had suffered and fell from grace. But Anna Louise Strong was never targeted by the Red Guards and remained in Mao's good graces throughout the entirety of the Cultural Revolution. In fact, she was even allowed to become an honorary Hongwei Bing, or Red Guard. In the end, during the last decade of her life, she had sort of become China's official spokesman to the English-speaking world. In 1962, she began writing a series of columns called Letter from China, something Zhou Enlai had coaxed her into doing. And this column was sort of a window into a world that was practically sealed shut from the West. She remained a friend to all communists, meeting Ho Chi Minh and other leaders of the socialist world. In 1965, she had an 80th birthday party, which both Mao and Zhou attended. And that alone sort of speaks to how revered and how special of a person she was in China. She died on March 29, 1970, and was given a very large public funeral, and her ashes were interred at Babaoshan, and I'm sure she and Agnes Smedley had a whole bunch to talk about afterwards. Now let's look at George Hatem, another sacred cow in the pantheon of famous Lao Wai from Chinese history. George Hatem, better known in China as Ma Hai De, was a physician. His signature claim to fame, amongst a number of achievements, was that he was the first foreigner to be granted citizenship in China after 1949. He was born Shafiq George Hatem on September 26, 1910, in Buffalo, New York. He was of Lebanese ancestry. His father, Nahum Salama Hatem, came from the village of Hamana in Lebanon, about 26 kilometers east of Beirut. He received his medical training in the U.S., Europe, and in Beirut. And through the relationships he had made along the way, he and a couple of his colleagues found themselves in Asia and in 1933 ended up in Shanghai, arriving there on September 5th. There in Shanghai, he set up a medical practice and took on a Chinese name, Ma Hai De, and hung out with the likes of Agnes Smedley, Rui Alley, Israel Epstein, who we'll look at in a moment, and other noted communists. He practiced in Shanghai for a few years, but closed up shop after becoming disillusioned with the whole scene there, the corruption, the misery. I mean, 1930s Shanghai was not the place for a good, honest idealist trying to do some good for society. So, with the help and influence of Song Ching Ling, Madam Sun Yat-sen, he ended up in Shanxi province in Xi'an, where he provided health care to the communists who had ended up there after the long march. There he hung out with the likes of Edgar Snow and all the communist leaders. Mao Zedong was notorious for shunning medical care and any and all doctors, but back then George Hatem provided medical services to the chairman. I think he may have been the only Western doctor to have this claim to fame. What is there to say except that this guy was a saint. He was a Western doctor who truly personified the term Wei Renmin Fu. He, along with the immortal Canadian doctor Norman Bethune, served the people selflessly, attending to the sick and wounded and using their channels to provide medical services to the Chinese up in the north. He was there when the Dixie Mission arrived in Yan'an in July 1944. 
We'll cover the Dixie mission in another podcast. Essentially, this was a diplomatic mission on behalf of the U.S. where feelers were sent out to see if the communists were people that the American government could work with. As we all know, we ditched these efforts in favor of full support for the nationalists. Mahai De, George Hatem, continued to serve the communists as a doctor throughout the entirety of the Chinese Civil War. And after liberation in 1949, he remained in China, serving in an official capacity in public health care. He is credited with leading campaigns that wiped out leprosy in China and helped to eradicate venereal diseases. In 1986, he was presented with the Lasker Medical Award, which is an honor given since 1946 to those who have gone above and beyond the norm in the field of basic medical research. In presenting the award, the Lasker Committee noted that, quote, Dr. Ma's contributions can be compared in importance to the eradication of yellow fever and the bubonic plague, and as a model for the public health control of venereal diseases, they stand alone. George Hatem Mahai De spent the rest of his days in China working tirelessly in the field of public health. He was active in politics and using his influence and position to advance public health and hygiene in China. After China opened up again in the 1980s, he served as a member of the Standing Committee of the CPPCC, the good old Chinese People's Political Consultative Conference, which you might recall from the last episode. He died in Beijing at the age of 78 in 1988. I remember the day well. It was uh, about a year before I moved to Hong Kong. He was accorded a multitude of honors and, of course, was given one of the ultimate honors in having his final resting place in Shan Cemetery. He truly lived a great life. Last but not least, let's look at Israel Epstein. With a name like that, it's a dead giveaway what his ethnic background was. He was a Polish Jew born in Warsaw on April 20th, 1915. There weren't too many foreigners who went on to be accepted into the Communist Party in China, but Israel Epstein was among the chosen ones, no pun intended. Like uh, Agnes Smedley and Anna Louise Strong, Israel Epstein is remembered as a friend of China who helped get the word out to the international community about the transformations that were going on in China during the 1930s up until his death six years ago in 2005. Like many Jews who faced persecution after the Bolshevik Revolution, Israel Epstein's family wound up in Tianjin, one of the few safe havens in China. He was two years old when his parents moved there, and at the young age of 15, he had begun his career as a writer and journalist. Like the other three people I've introduced, he knew all the leaders and throughout his long career had interviewed them all. As with Anna Louise Strong... Epstein's champion in China, who brought him together with the top leadership, was none other than Song Qingling. It was Madame Sun who established the China Defense League in 1938. The purpose of this organization was to publicize China's dire situation in the late 1930s, after the Japanese began running amok in China. So effective was he in getting the word out and bringing a lot of heat on the Japanese that he became a marked man and famously had to fake his own death in order to get the Japanese secret police off his case. He was a longtime friend and colleague of Edgar Snow, who we'll 
cover one day in another podcast, Edgar Snow is best known for his magnum opus, Red Star Over China. In fact, it was Israel Epstein who got to see and critique the manuscript first before the book was published. So he was part of the gang of true believers who lived in China during the Civil War and were committed to getting the word out about what Mao was trying to accomplish. Like all of these committed communists, he was often branded as an apologist for the CCP, pretty much with the exception of half a dozen years between 1944 and 1951 when he lived in Britain and the U.S. Israel Epstein's entire life was spent in China. He came back in 1951 upon the request of his longtime friend, Madam Sun, Song Qingling, who asked him to become the editor for the world-famous magazine China Reconstructs, which I used to read religiously back in the 1980s. Well, this journal was more or less filled with CCP propaganda, but it was nonetheless a window into a world that during the 50s and 60s was as hermetically sealed as today's North Korea. In 1957, Israel Epstein became a Chinese citizen, and in 1964, he joined the Communist Party of China. And this turned out to be a double-edged sword in that during the Cultural Revolution, he wound up in China's version of Lefertovo Prison, which in Beijing is the notorious Qingcheng Jianyu, Qingcheng Prison. He had plenty of company there. Sidney Rittenberg did time there, as well as leaders such as Bo Yibo, father of Bo Xilai, as well as uh, Peng Zhen. He ended up in Qingcheng Prison due to some trumped-up charges that he had plotted against Zhou Enlai. Premier Zhou issued an apology to Epstein upon his release. And despite the time spent there in solitary confinement, he'd never wavered from the cause of the Communist Party and remained a loyal member up until the end. Like George Hatem, Israel Epstein was a member of the Standing Committee of the CPPCC, and he continued to write and to speak out positively about the PRC and was as much a friend to the leaders as the others I have mentioned. He was personally friends with Mao, with Zhou, Deng Xiaoping, Jiang Zemin, and Hu Jintao. In fact, when he officially retired in 1985, Deng Xiaoping personally attended his retirement party. And when he passed away quietly in Beijing on May 26, 2005, his funeral was held at Shan Cemetery. And in attendance was no less than the president of China himself, Hu Jintao. Also in attendance were Premier Wen Jiabao and other party luminaries such as Jia Qinglin and Li Changchun. There were more than just these four who I've mentioned, who China's leaders depended on to spread the word and help polish China's international image, especially prior to China's opening up to the outside world in 1978-79. The list is long, but today we only covered those whose graves can be visited at Babaoshan Cemetery. These were four lives that not only witnessed modern Chinese history, but actually helped play a, a role. And there's a lot more I could have said about each one, but for this episode I only wanted to make you aware of them and touch briefly on their lives and why they were laid to eternal rest in such an important place as Babaoshan. Agnes Smedley, Anna Louise Strong, and Israel Epstein were all prolific writers, and if you're 
interested, you could go on the Google or the Baidu if you don't have the patience to deal with all the Google-related issues if you're in China. And you can check them out, and this will lead you to a plethora of their writings. I guess some of the stuff may seem a little dated, but go check them out if you would like to read more about them and more of what they wrote. Well, that's about all I have for you today. As I write this, I'm sitting here on the 30th floor of the Guangzhou Westin. It's Canton Fair time here, so there are foreigners galore and all the prices of the hotels and hotel services and train tickets are all jacked up as usual. I'm heading back to L.A. tomorrow night, and with that, I will put the final exclamation point on this month of travel. That Hong Kong trip at the beginning of October when I uploaded the episode on the San Huang Wu Di, the Three Sovereigns and Five Emperors, seems like ages ago. I'm looking forward to getting back to the USSA and falling back into my normal routine. I apologize for making y'all's wait as long as I did for this episode. It's a little dicey trying to pump out these podcasts from the road without my China History Podcast Library to rely on. And everything you've read about the internet here in China is true. As I think I've mentioned from time to time, I'm barely an amateur when it comes to the technical aspects of cyberspace, so things like VPNs are still a mystery to me. And as a result, I couldn't even send out a message on Twitter to advise my followers about the delay. Uh, One last thing before I leave you. I know I plug these guys a lot, but if you haven't done it yet please go check out the October 12th episode of the Seneca Podcast featuring the inimitable and always interesting Kaiser Guo. This particular show features both David Moser and Jeremiah Jenny, two real China history specialists, as opposed to your humble and amateur narrator here. Go check it out and listen to 57 minutes and 22 seconds of three very smart and intelligent China hands discuss uh, Sun Yat-sen and the Xinhai Revolution. I promise you a very fine program. That's it, folks. I'm going to go head out now to good old Siddick Plaza across the street here with my colleagues from Ningbo and gorge myself on some sushi and Japanese vittles, all on the uh, (coughs) company credit card, of course. I wouldn't have it any other way. This is Laszlo Montgomery signing off and letting you know we'll be back to normal next week, whatever that means, and it's my most secret hope that you'll join me next time for another, dare I say, exciting episode of the China History Podcast. Thanks for listening.